Tonight we're going to look at Psalms 46. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give you, uh, I, I've never been a huge fan of the Psalms. And I figured out why. It's not because the Psalms aren't good. Okay? The Psalms are wonderful. I just never knew how to read them. And that's something that, I, that they taught me in school. Um, the Psalms is, the, the whole book of Psalms is just an emotional outcry to God. It's just being able to show your emotions and, and, and really what you feel. It's not, it's not a laid out pattern of worship of, okay, it's a ritual and this is what you need to do. I mean, the Psalms, it, it's real life. It, it, it is real emotion. It's how you feel. And um, it, it's with a lot of poetry and it paints a lot of pictures. So tonight as we go through Psalms 46, what I would like for you to do and what I would like to ask you to do is to paint the picture in your mind with the words that the psalmist used, with the words that I'm going to use or, or, or try to use, I pray God just paints the picture in your mind because if you're not painting a picture with the psalms, then you're not grasping what he's trying to show you, okay? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and, um, and we'll get started. Dear Lord, thank you for this night. Thank you for this time to uh, just come to your house and worship, Lord. We, we honor our mothers today, Lord, but today is Sunday and first and most of all, we honor you. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for this time. I just pray, God, if there is any in here that are lost, Lord, I pray you just bind any evil spirits, Lord. I pray you bring conviction on us. I pray, Lord, that the message that you have given uh, to me and for Hillcrest Baptist Church tonight, Lord, I pray it'll go out. I pray it'll take root. And, Lord, I pray it'll change the way we view you, God, just in everything that we do, that it just brings us closer to a true living knowledge of you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalms 46 is a beautiful psalm. Uh, it, it's got some verses in it that you're going to know. It's got some verses that we sing about. But to give you the history behind Psalms 46, Psalms 46 is looking over a disastrous time in Judah, in the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Hezekiah is the king during this time that this psalm was wrote. All right? And this psalmist wrote these events looking back. I mean, he, they've already come through the hard times. They've already come through, and God has proven himself faithful. And so the psalmist is writing this psalm expressing himself. Uh, to give you the history, um, Hezekiah for many years was a great king in Israel. Uh, the, if you go and read his accounts of what God says about him, it's in 2 Kings chapter 19 through 21. And God even comes to a point to where he says that there was never a king that clave so much to him before or after Hezekiah. I mean, that's some strong words. When God uses the word clave, he, he's talking like a marital status there. That's the first time that word is used, clave. When Adam and Eve came together as one flesh. They claved to each other. That's how close Hezekiah was to God, and we're going to see that. Um, but Hezekiah is dealing with an outside enemy, and that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. When the enemy is at your gates, when the enemy is knocking on your door, how do you respond? When it looks like there's nowhere else you can go, when it looks like there's nowhere else to turn to, how do you deal with that? And Hezekiah has been in this situation. The Assyrian Empire is the major world power at the time. And, and, and I'm not going to get too much into it, but basically they're coming after Jerusalem. They're coming after Hezekiah. They have him backed into his corner, and there is nowhere else for him to go. Um, and so that is the history behind Psalm 46. 
what I need you to understand is that's not just the history around Psalm 46. That's our present day life as believers in Christ. If you want to go look at Ephesians 6, chapter 10 through 23, it lets you know, Paul let the Ephesians know real quick that every believer is under constant, constant, constant attack by the enemy. And it's not just one wave. It's not just uh, a few little demons here or a little temptation there. It's a constant oppression. They have you backed into a corner and they're waiting on you to fall. If you are a non-believer, let me go ahead and tell you, they've already won that battle with you right now. Your life is, is in their hands. You are just putty being played around in their hands. But can I tell you something else? That the battle for your salvation has already been won. You just have to make the decision to accept it. Okay? And so that's what we're looking at with Psalms 46. In our present day lives, we are under attack. 1 Peter 5.18 says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He is constantly on watch, constantly on the attack. And so, as we dig into this psalm, let's begin in verse 1. Psalms 46, verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. When we look at that word refuge, we need to understand in their context, in their day, that would have brought to mind their cities of refuge. And you know what those are. You've been taught well. Those cities of refuge were for people who had accidentally committed a crime and they could run to those cities for protection, but they had to go to those cities because if they do not go to that city, they could be avenged. The, the avenger of blood could come after them and take their lives from them from what they had done. That's what would have gone through their mind. I, I want to show you that word refuge right there, what it's talking about in our day, to paint the picture for you, it would be like a bomb shelter. All right? It would be like a bomb shelter. The, the psalmist is saying that God is our refuge. When the enemy is at our gates, when we're under attack, we have a refuge that we can go to. And World War II, all throughout Europe, and even in the United States after uh, Pearl Harbor bomb shelters became the rage. People would go and they would dig out huge holes and they would line them with cement and they would put rations in there and they would put food in there and they put supplies in there. And when the enemies would fly over them and they would drop bombs on the ground, they would go to their refuge and understand that refuge would take the pounding, would take the punishment while they were safe and secure inside. That's what the psalmist is writing about here. He's talking about that God is our refuge, that when the enemy comes and, and you go to that point to where you don't know where to go, that God has already provided it for you. And in fact, not only has he provided it for you, he has literally taken himself, wrapped himself around you, and those bombs, he's taken that hit for you. You, you don't have to feel that. You don't have to feel that. Okay? So Psalms 46.1 starts out that he is our refuge and strength and a very present help in a time of trouble. That, that word trouble, uh, to us, it's just, it's, a, it's kind of a, when you get in trouble, you're, you know, you got in trouble. You might have got a speeding ticket. You got to go pay, pay a speeding ticket. It, it's just, you know, it's a little bit of trouble. That's not what the psalmist is speaking of. The, that word in their language would have, it, it would have been an anxiety. It would have been almost an insanity that you have been plagued for so long, you've been troubled for so long that you just, you, you don't know where to go anymore. Has anybody been in that, in that situation in their life in here? Or am I the only one that has experienced that to where you have, you have felt so much trouble, so much pressure, you have been under so much constant scrutiny of either yourself or of outside, outside attacks, and man, you just don't know where to go. 
You feel like you're about to lose your mind. That's where the psalmist is talking about. He is, God is our refuge and our strength in a very present trouble. And verse 2 goes into therefore. Remember what I told you about this morning. Therefore is are very important in the Bible. It means for this reason. So now we're going to go into the history. Why would God need to be our refuge? Why would God need to help us in a time of trouble? How can we be secure in that? How can we have peace during that? And that's what we're going to look at now. The first part is the history of the psalm. The second part, moving into verse 2, we see the destruction of the enemy. Look at it with me. And again, while I'm reading these words, paint the picture. Paint the picture in your mind of what it would have looked like. Therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried away into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. So what... The, the psalmist is talking about here is, again, let's go back to Hezekiah's time. They're, they're in Jerusalem. The Assyrian army has come out to them. The, the picture of destruction that is painted here, we know that um, Hezekiah made a league. He made a league with the northern tribes. He made a league with Syria, who, which is even farther than the northern tribes. He made a league with Egypt. And they were all going to stand against the Assyrian oppression that was about to come on them. And here's what, here's what the psalmist is talking about. The Assyrians came to Syria. They destroyed it. Went through it. Just totally decimated Syria. They came to Israel. Northern Israel. Destroyed it. Totally decimated it. Then they went down around Judah and fought Egypt. and Destroyed its armies. And so now they have Hezekiah completely encompassed. He's the last one left. Even some of his cities have fallen under their control. That is what we're looking at here in verse 2. Look, look at it with me. It says, we will not fear. Why can we not fear? Though the earth be moved. That word earth can also be translated land. And the word removed can be translated change hands. Though the earth around us is being literally transformed. It's being totally removed. No longer is Israel the northern tribe, a nation. They, they've been captured. They've been captive. Uh, no longer is Syria. It's all, it's all falling apart. It's a constant, uh, it's constant changing. I mean, it's just a mist of turmoil constantly. That's where we are in verse 2. The meaning of, uh, of the hands being changed, the land being changed hands, that that's Assyria would come in and be the conquering power over God's people. Let me go ahead and say this today as an example. When we look at where we are, just, just us, Hillcrest, we're not talking about the outside church. We're talking about where we are. There's an enemy that's moving in on us. They've taken out ally after ally. We've seen people, we've seen pastors, we've seen churches fall one at a time. Every day, it seems like somebody else has fallen. Every day, it's one more. It's every day, it seems like the enemy has closed us in one more step. I mean, can you, can you paint that in your mind with me? Because I can feel it. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to see here. That our church is in the same scenario. The church of God across the world, across the earth, is in the same scenario I don't know if y'all heard about it in Easter, but in Easter, they, were, they had, uh, uh, they had uh, Easter services over in Egypt. 
And bombers came in and blew them up. I mean, that's an attack. And to us, we don't understand what that feels like. We don't deal with that. But like I read this morning, we should know what that feels like. Those are believers in Christ. Those are the body of Christ. We should hurt when they hurt. When things like that come against us, we should notice it. And we should be on our knees in prayer. But what happens all too often is we all try to stand alone. We try to make a stand by ourselves. We try to make a stand just as Hillcrest Baptist Church. Instead of seeking out fellow believers and making a stand for God and making a real difference. But here, their world is falling apart around them. I mean, it's total chaos. We're talking apocalyptic. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are standing outside of their gates. Their way of life is changing every day. The mountains, look in verse 3. I'm sorry, back, back to verse 2. It says, and the mountains are carried into the midst of the sea. That talks about that, that these mountains in Israel, the northern side of Israel is very mountainous. And so when it's talking about the mountains being carried into the midst of the sea, it's talking about those northern tribes being up, uprooted and just taken off. It, uh, Samaria would have been a hard place to attack. It would have been thought impregnable even. But yet the Assyrians had no trouble carrying them off into the midst of the sea, into the midst of total destruction. Verse 3 goes even farther. The enemy even boasts about what they can do. Look in verse 3. It says, Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Um, that's talking about the enemy's boasting in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 through chapter 19, verse 13. The, ge the general of the Assyrian army comes out to the gates of Jerusalem and boasts about how they're going to take God's city. And there's three things that he says. One, he boasts about the defeat of their allies. Doesn't the world do that to us today? The defeat of their allies. Man, we, we, look what this pastor did. Look what this church did. And they're gone now. Look what this ministry used to... Man, they used to be great. They used to be on fire. But all I had to do was just infiltrate them a little bit and, and corrupt them. And, and people started stealing or people started abusing it. And then the next thing you know, it's falling apart. So the first thing that the enemy boasts about is their allies. We've totally destroyed everyone that you rely on. The next thing they boast about is their military might. The general comes out and says, look at us. What could such a little army do against us? In fact, they were so cocky that the general told the people and told Hezekiah that if you will surrender and if you will open your gates, we'll give you 200 horses to add to your army if you can put a man on them. I mean, that's some... What they're saying is, is, you'll just open up your gates and you'll just give up. We'll actually make you more powerful. We'll give you some, some extra strength. I'm telling you guys, we are under that same attack today as the church. They want you to stop preaching the Word of God. They want you to just be quiet. To just, or, or In fact, it's not just preach the Word of God. It's just don't talk about the things that offend people. You can preach the Word of God. Just don't preach all of it. They want you to just... Open up the gates, and you know what? If you'll just make a peace treaty with me, if you'll come out and just shake my hand, it'll all be good. We won't attack you anymore. In fact, we'll help you. We'll give you government funding for it. We'll give you, uh, you know, whatever it is to make your ministry, to make you better off. We'll help you out if you'll just not preach it the way it's supposed to be preached. 
The third thing he boasted about, he boasted that their God was no different than any of the other gods. They had ran into Syria. Syria had many gods. They destroyed them all. They ran into Israel. Israel even claimed partially to worship Jehovah God, but yet they had more than just him, and they destroyed all them. They then went down to Egypt. We know Egypt has plenty of gods. They destroyed all them. What makes your God different than, than anybody else's? What makes your God any different that you think he's going to deliver you? I'm telling you, that's the same thing we hear today. What makes your God different than the Muslim God? There's no difference. What makes your God different than the Hindu God? What makes your God different? Let me tell you something that makes my God different. In all those other religions, I have to do something for God. In my religion, God did everything for me. And I can't do anything else for him. All I can do is just give my life to him and whatever comes through his will, I can do it. But I can't even do that on my own strength. He's got to do it through me. And that's how we all are. That's the attack that we are facing today. That's the reason why people are giving up on churches because we stopped relying on the power of God and we started saying, hey, Jared Stiles can do it. Y'all aren't with me. We stopped relying on the power that God has given us and that God himself has supplied for us and we kept on relying on men and the things of men. And that's the boast that people out there are boasting today. Man, Christianity ain't no different. There ain't no power there. What are you talking about power? Your God isn't any different. Why isn't he delivering you now? We come, we, 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 we shut you up every single day. Every single day we tell you you can't go into your schools and preach about God. Every single day we tell you you can't come and read your Bible. Every single day we tell you that if you keep preaching about God in our factories and in our workplaces, man, we'll fire you. How much does it take to stop you? How much does it take to stop you? Because the boasts are out there. But that's not where it ends. So we see the destruction of the enemy. We see the total upheaval in their lives. I mean, these people are distraught. Just imagine, just put yourself behind the walls of Jerusalem for a second. You got 185,000 people. 185,000 people that don't care about your life. That would love to just storm your gates, destroy your families, and leave you desolate. And you've just, you're, you're just this little bitty city. I mean, it would be the equivalent of China, who is the largest standing army surrounding Lebanon. 2.2 million people in China are in their military. There's about 40,000, 50,000 people in Lebanon. Could you imagine the distress that would go on in the city of Lebanon today if that was the case? That's what they're dealing with, and that's what we are dealing with spiritually and in this world. So, moving on. So we see the destruction of the enemy. We see the chaos. Now let's look at the river. We've seen the refuge. Even though all that destruction's going on, the psalmist, again, remember, he's looking back over the events. He's looking at what has already happened. And the psalmist in the first verse tells us that God is our refuge and a very present strength in a time of trouble. So we've seen the refuge. We've seen the destruction of the enemy. Now let's look at the river. Verse 4 says, But there's a river, the streams of a, whereof shall make a glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God 
is in the midst of her. And she shall not be moved. God will help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. So Hezekiah here is preparing for the battle. And you know what the most important thing about battle, it still hasn't changed today. Even today, the most important thing about going to battle is a water supply. You got to have water. I mean, our bodies just can't go without it. You can go about three or four days, I think, and without water. And then after that, things start shutting down, falling apart. If you're going to go to battle, if you're going to go to war, you got to have water. You just have to. Without a steady water supply, the city of Jerusalem would have fell within two to three months to the Assyrians. If all they did was just encircle the city, keep supplies from coming in, the city would have failed. They would have never had to even lose a man. Two to three months, the city would have been destroyed. But Hezekiah, through the wisdom of God, he redirected the spring of Gihon's 1,777 feet through solid rock, He then covered up the old spring so the enemy would have no knowledge of it. Without this water source, Jerusalem would have failed. Now, guys, let's take that. We've seen that real-life scenario, right? We still got the 185,000 at the gate. Now we've redirected a water spring. We've claimed God as our refuge. We now have a water supply. What is that water supply? Friends, it's salvation. There should be a constant spring welling up inside you, the Bible says. If you will, actually, uh, open to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Jeremiah 2, 13, it says this. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed down the cisterns, and hewed down cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What it's talking about there is that Judah at this time has rejected God. And too many times as a church, when we are under attack and we are under pressure, we forget about our water source. God told us, Jesus told us that in John chapter 4, he told the woman at the well that if you drink of this water, the water I am offering you, you'll never thirst again. He said the same thing in John chapter 7, verses 34 and 35. If you will, any man that takes of this water will never thirst again. But too often when the enemy comes at our door and they're banging on our door, we forget where our water supply is. Instead of going to our knees in prayer and instead of searching the scriptures for God's word and his plan for our life, we allow our water to run dry. And then next thing you know, we're having to surrender. We're having to open up our doors to the enemy because we have no water left in us. We have nothing to sustain us, nothing to keep us going. Look at this. Fighting in a battle is labor intensive. God promised it would be. 1 Corinthians 15, 59 says, Brother, remember that your labor is not in vain. Therefore, stand. Fighting's not easy. It's labor intensive. And God's promised you that it's going to come. It's labor intensive. Not only that, fighting in a battle is fatiguing. You're going to get tired. Ephesians 6, 13 tells us that having done all to stand, stand anyways. That when you have nothing left to stand on, when your body is so given out of the spiritual warfare that's going on in your life, just stand. And while we're speaking about spiritual warfare, let me go ahead and tell you something. Spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 5, or I'm sorry, in chapter 6, 
verses 10 through 13 there, he gives us the um, armor of God, right? We all know that. All the armor of God that God asks us to put on. But in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about relationships. Now, what we got to see here is that Paul is talking about the family relationships. He then goes, talks about how children and parents should have a relationship. He then goes on and talks about how you should have relationships with your employer. He goes on and talks about any relationship that you could deal with in your life. But then right after that, he goes into spiritual warfare, spiritual battle that's going to take place. Friend, that's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that God had Paul write that out. The greatest spiritual warfare that you're going to deal with is relationships with people. The greatest spiritual warfare I'm going to deal with is probably going to be within my own realm of influence, my family, my friends, the people I work with constantly, every single day, because we're human. And that's, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood because we are all unworthy of God, but those spiritual, uh, uh, those spiritual powers and principalities and powers are constantly trying to attack those relationships. And we've seen that in America. The reason why we're not strong anymore is because our families aren't strong, because we don't stand on the Word of God anymore. We've allowed our relationships to fall apart to such an extent that now when we come into the house of God, we can't get filled with the water because we haven't got right with each other. We can't, we can't get filled up with our water supply, and we can't continue our battling, and we can't continue our fighting because we got too many problems among brother and sister. That's our biggest problem. So moving on from there, Hezekiah has a foundation for the battle. Notice here that the view changes in these verses. The first two or three verses above that, verses two through three, man, it is total apocalypse going on. The, the land's changing hands. Everything seems to be falling apart. But then all of a sudden, boom, verse four, there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Verse 6, though the heathen raged and the kingdoms were moved, he uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob. What that's saying there and what we need to see is, okay, so now we've painted this picture of apocalypse and destruction, but then when we rely on the water supply that is God, when we rely and we fill ourselves with prayer and with daily Bible study and with proper relationships with each other, we're not going to be moved. We can have peace during times of battle and times of war. The world can't understand that. It's a peace beyond understanding. How can you be at fighting? How can you be battling, but yet be at peace with one another? It's because you've been filled. And you have a proper water supply. You have a river of peace running through you. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two different scenarios? The difference is who's in the midst. The difference is who's in the midst. Verse 5 tells us God is in the midst of her. Look, God is in the midst of his people. God, every time he shows up on scripture, he's in the middle of it. He's not standing off to the sidelines. He's not removed to a point that he can't help you. I love how it says in Isaiah that is God's hand too short that he cannot reach down and bring salvation. God is in the midst. He is here right now today. You could fix your lives. You could fix your church right now today because God's already here in the midst of his people. All right. So. We see the foundation he's been standing on. When Hezekiah calls, God answers. 
And here's what we need to understand about Hezekiah. When he called on God, he humbled himself before God. The Bible says that he as the king removed his kingly garments, put on sackcloth and ashes, and then even the men underneath him, the rulers of the people did the same thing, and they went and they prayed to God, and God answered immediately. I'm talking about immediately. God will answer you when you come to him in the proper way. Also, look here, it says in verse 5, God shall help her in that right early. That right early means during their days, usually the most likely time of attack was early morning. The early morning. The enemy would come and attack you early in the morning as soon as there was sunlight and they would fight all day long. Well, when you go read that story, God sends his angel late at night. One angel wipes out 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So can you imagine with me, can you just put you again, go back to Israel, put yourself against those walls. You're going to bed that night and you're thinking, man, tomorrow might be my last day. You're thinking about how can I get little Johnny, how can I get little Susie out of this place because this whole wall is about to come down and these people aren't going to show us any mercy. They're not going to care about my children. You're thinking, you're, you're hugging your spouse, you're hugging your, your husband, your wife, and you tell them how much you love them, and you're praying, you're crying out to God that he's going to send somebody, but let's be honest, they're, they're humans, they're thinking, they're looking, there's no way this is happening, but they're hoping, they're just praying for a miracle, and then you wake up the next morning, you wake up the next morning, and you go, and you stand on those walls, and you look over it, and all you see is all the enemy army just laying on the ground. God has already done it for you. That is the story of salvation for anybody here that has lost the day. God has come down. He's fought the battle for you. There's not an enemy left standing. You can walk out the gates of those cities and you can claim salvation because God has done it for you. That's what the, that, that is what the psalmist is speaking of when he says God is in the midst of her and he will fight for her right early. He will not wait. You want to cry out to God today for salvation? He's not going to wait. He's not going to tell you to wait a second. He's not going to tell you to wait a minute. He would rather you disturb this message right now and come and get clean. We would all love that. I mean, that is his hope. That is his desire for everyone. And that is where the people are at. They, that God would be in the midst of them and deliver them. The heathen raged, it said in verse 6. You could probably hear the battle cry. No doubt when, the, when people started dropping dead in that Assyrian army, could you imagine the tumult and just the chaos that ensued? I mean, one Assyrian after another is just dropping. No doubt the Assyrians probably are, are beginning to fight amongst themselves even. But, it, it, I mean, it's probably just a, it, it's a rage. They're just... The people are probably frightened, thinking they're attacking them. And then they wake up the next morning, and God's uttered his voice, and they're melted away. They're just being removed. Verse 6 is the climax of that whole section, of this whole chapter. But then, let's move on. Verse 7, I want you to notice a contrast here. We talked about this morning. Verse 7 says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The Lord of hosts, we talked about that. Yahweh Savah the mighty military commander, the all-powerful one. But notice it says, is with who? With us. With us. Those words are Emmanuel. The only thing that's missing is God, Emmanuel. So what this is literally saying, if I could diagram it out on you the screen there for you, is 
the Lord of hosts, the God of angel army, is Emmanuel. So while you're standing there and you're at the brink and you're fighting everything that you have, God is with you. And to you, he's not this dangerous Lord of hosts, although he is and we reverence him. He's not going to attack you. That is who he is to the enemy. To you, he is God with us, Emmanuel. He has come to be with you and to be in the midst of you and to bring you peace. I mean, that is a beautiful word picture that the psalmist had wrote for us. Lastly, and this is the last thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at the ruler. We've looked at the refuge. We've looked at the river. And finally, we're going to look at the ruler. All right? Verses 8 through 11, it says this. Come, come, behold the works of the Lord and what desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and he cutteth the spear asunder. He burneth the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. And, I, and I, I'm going to go over these things real quick and we're going to go into a time of invitation. All right? But here's what I want you to see. The psalmist here is talking about a past, a present, and a future state for Jerusalem. That is what the psalmist is talking about here. He's talking about it from a past aspect of this whole scenario that we've talked about, the Assyrians. In the past, they've, they, God has done so much for them. All right? So he's talking about it in the past scenario. Can we look at Hillcrest past? I asked Jessica for some information about when Brother Kling first came here 25 years ago, what did it look like? 100 people on a good Sunday. On a good Sunday, 100 people. Total financial ruin. Nothing. Nothing to boast about. Nothing to brag about. Can we not say God has been capable in the past? Right? God has been capable in our past. The psalmist then goes on to say that God is not only capable in our past, but God is capable in our present. Right now. Right now. You, again, you do not have to go away today feeling defeated in your life. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you do not have to leave these doors feeling defeated. You do not have to leave these doors feeling oppressed and under attack. You can come, get filled with the water of life, and He will be in the midst of you. He will be Emmanuel to you. He is faithful in the present. Not only that, the psalmist is saying, God will be faithful in the future. For Jerusalem, he maketh, no war, he maketh wars to cease. There will be no more wars one day. To the end of the earth, he breaketh the bow. He cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariots. There is nothing that God will not bring to peace for Jerusalem in the future is what the psalmist is saying and believing here. But we can look at that as believers in Christ and we can say the exact same thing that our future is victorious. It's glorious. I don't have the words. I don't have the capability to explain to you what it looks like. I just don't. All I know is I stand in awe every day that I can wake up and at that moment and at my moment in the past and in my moment in the future, my God holds me in his hands and he has been Emmanuel with me every step of the way. That is what the psalmist 
is bringing to us here. And then you see God break onto this. Notice, we go from the psalmist is talking about someone to all of a sudden, eyes come into the scene here. Look at it. Verse 10, be still. Be still. That means to stand in front of. You understand, no matter who you are, you will stand in front of God one day. I will stand in front of God one day. You will stand in front of God one day. This whole earth will stand in front of God one day. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. God here is telling us that it's going to be okay. No matter what the battle looks like, no matter what your life looks like, if you will come and exalt Him, He will take care of the rest of it for you. Be still and know. Look, Hillcrest, I know right now it's a hard time here. Let's just be honest with each other. Let's, be, let's get real. It's hard. I know. I know I'm not here, but I, I, like I said this morning, I feel, I hurt with you. I hurt with Brother Glenn. He hurts for you. But we have got to claim that we can be still. And even though it all looks like it's falling around around us, even though everything it looks like God's built is about to fall apart, He holds it in His hands. He's the God of hosts. He's the God Emmanuel. And He's in the midst of us today, tomorrow, in the past and the future. We can claim that hope. And lastly, let me finish up here. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. We looked at that aspect of it, the, the, the equating of the Lord of hosts and with us. But then look at this. The second part of that verse says, the God of Jacob is our refuge. That word for refuge there is different than the first refuge. Okay? Remember the first refuge that I talked to you about? It was like a bomb shelter. It was like you had crawled into a space and you're still in the midst of that battle and bombs are just raining down on top of you. But God is protecting you. That's the refuge in the first verse. Here in the last verse, the word changes to mean a high tower. That God has taken you from the battle because you've trusted in Him, because you filled your life with His water, because you've supplied yourself, and He's taking you from that battle. And not only is He going to go out and fight it for you, but He's placed you in a high place to where you can be safe and have peace and rest, even though the battle is raging on. I mean, that is some hope. Not only that, He says, the God of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Well, we know He was the father of Israel, but... What does Jacob's name mean? It means deceiver, right? Again, I know I've beat this drum so many times, but I feel like we need to keep beating it. If you've deceived yourself today, you've never really given your life to Christ. God is still your God. You just have to choose how you're going to meet Him. How are you going to be still in front of Him? Are you going to come before Him right now while you have the time? Repent of your sins Become a believer, become a son, allow him to take you from the refuge of the life that is being destroyed around you and place you on places on high? Or are you going to deceive yourself and stand before him in judgment and hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And then they're going to carry you off into an everlasting punishment that will not stop. There will be no refuge there. There will be no high or lifted up place that God will bring you from because you have rejected his refuge that he's offered you today.